everyone, and welcome to the Voices of Music Therapy podcast. I'm your host, Brian Lacasio, and on today's episode, it is the annual year in review. So this is year two since my board certification in music therapy. So I'm excited to tell you all about the lessons I've learned. And for those of you who are just listening for the first time, thank you so much for joining me and the community that we've created. I hope that you find this useful if you're a student or an intern. I hope that you find knowledge in some of the lessons I've learned. Um, Hopefully it can save you some time. And for those of you who have been practicing for the same amount of time or more, I hope you find validation in these statements and maybe you can compare and contrast with your own experiences. So that's the idea behind this is it's kind of like a mental journal that I do every year to reflect and to help others benefit from it. So I hope you enjoy. So let's go ahead and get started. So I'm going to be going through numbers of the things I've learned. So number one is I've learned that reaching out to professionals is always worth a shot. Many are happy to sit down with you and talk to you, whether that's through emailing them and just saying, hey, you know, I read your book. I thought it was fantastic. Do you have 30 minutes one day to speak with me? Or, hey, Dr. So-and-so from Blank University, I really was inspired by your research in the NICU, and I would love to meet with you and talk to you about it. Any opportunity you have to speak with those that you admire or um, desire to follow a similar life path with, I encourage you to do that. That might be networking events even, where you go and it's a young professional group and you have the opportunity to engage with those individuals in different career paths and maybe they can merge where you can offer them some useful skills or some useful advice from your field or they could offer you um, a position potentially at their hospital or anything like that. So I encourage you all to get yourselves out there. The anxiety and stress behind that can be real, but I just encourage you to go in with no expectations at all and to try and talk to people. And if you do those two things, something's going to come out of it. It's going to be really great. So that's the first lesson I've learned. The second thing that I've learned is only you can define your self-worth for others. So your self-worth is super important just in life and any profession. That's something that is cross-professional. But then in terms of how you view yourself, it can influence your pay, It can influence your boundaries between work and free time, your friendships. So really, really work on yourself um, as I've been doing a lot in this past second year of mine. Financially in the workplace is a big one. I always encourage people to ask for raises. It's scary. It's intimidating. Um, A lot of our profession is white women and women of color and then also a couple men sprinkled in there and non-binary and all the beautiful genders that exist. A lot of us are told that we shouldn't be asking for raises or we shouldn't ask our coworkers how much they make, but I encourage you to do it. It really creates a competitive atmosphere for salaries and I found it to be extremely beneficial. So find that self-worth in yourself. Ask for the raise if you haven't yet. If you've never asked for a raise, definitely ask for a raise, but you can use the census from AMTA to kind of see what other people's pay is. So that's a valuable resource as well. I also encourage you to think about your boundaries at work. Like I mentioned, the work that we do is really hard because it's so amazing. It's so incredible. And we're working to help people reach the goals that they or their family aspire for them to reach. And so it's hard to step away from that. 
that's something that I definitely had a challenge with at the beginning of my career, but you can still help them accomplish their goals. You can still support them without answering a text at 7 p.m. You know, as much as you respect their time, they should respect that time of yours as well. So keep that in mind. I encourage you all to set some clear boundaries and healthy boundaries are different for everybody. As far as friendships go, transitioning into the real world can be challenging. In university, you got to be in the same place every day, same time, or every other day, and you had that bond based on proximity and time. When you're in the real world, you no longer necessarily just have that time. You have to make it. So if you're looking for new friends, like you just moved into a new city, one of the things I've learned is just to join a group or go somewhere that's the same time every single week, same place, and you'll begin to meet the regulars. You'll begin to meet people and talk, and that's a great way to meet friends if you haven't done that before. It could be a library. It could be a bar for those of you who are into like a social atmosphere. It could be a boba tea shop, or it could even be, I don't know, like a bowling group, something like that. Just encourage yourself to be at the same place, same time. And for the friends that you already have, one of the things I've learned is to really set aside maybe a day or a day a month where you can do a group call with friends if they're all um, know each other or a group day where you call each of your friends throughout the day once a month or something like that. It's just a really useful way to stay in contact with those friends that may live in another country or another state and you no longer get to see all the time. Number two, therapeutic advocacy. Okay, so you have to update your boss with all that you do because bosses are busy. They may have their own caseload. They may be managing the caseload of the other music therapists or creative art therapists or um, just workers and don't always know all that you do. So that's one of the biggest things I've learned. And that's one that I learned from my mother. But it's that you need to intentionally line it all up for your boss and be like, hey, just so you know, here's all the things I'm doing. That could look like a meeting. It could look like a PDF update of all that you do. But it's just a really great way to advocate for yourself and to have an ongoing record set. Everybody knows how amazing you are and all the extra things that you're doing. So I encourage you all to do that. In services are also the best services. If you have a chance to advocate and get paid for doing that advocacy, what is a better opportunity? We're always talking about that in school, of getting the word about music therapy's effectiveness out there. And if you have an opportunity to sit down, it could lead to future clients, to education for others. It's just a really great opportunity and one that I've appreciated every time I've had the privilege of doing so. And if you are being asked to do something other than music therapy that was not listed on your contract, I encourage you all to ask to be compensated accordingly or to have a discussion about the expectations and what your expectations are in the role versus your colleagues or your supervisors or CEO. Definitely make very clear communication as to what music therapy is and what that entails. Last thing is I always encourage people to discuss the different types of music therapists that exist. You know, we all have individual training. Each university has its own unique style, although there are the governing credentials that we have to get at the end. So this training has to be standardized to some degree. 
However, each person is different. So once again, just really know the differences in types of music therapists so that if you one day want to own a private practice or do something like that, you'll know exactly the type to look for. And that's a great word of advice for those of you who aren't music therapists but are listening to the episode. Number three, music therapy is a profession and not a personality type hot takes. Um, This one is really important to me. When I was in university, I kind of had this mindset of I have to set everything aside because right now I'm focusing on my career. And that just means that there are times where I won't be able to have fun. I won't be able to go out to the bars with my friends or I won't be able to go to that person's recital because I'm working on my own pieces or whatever it is. But I encourage you all and encouraging myself continually to differentiate myself from what I do, even though I love what I do. And that's just helps with all of the things that we've been talking about regarding burnout on episodes. It helps with continuing to have that energized excitement, even like the polar opposite, just to have that excitement in sessions. So definitely don't let yourself fall into that trap. If you feel like you don't look like, act like, or think like any other music therapist, that is a great thing because you'll bring something to the table that no other music therapist will. And I really want you to accept that and take that in. No one else can do music therapy like you. And if you're different from everyone, you are such a valuable resource to the music therapy community and to the helping profession community. And for those of you who may be doubting the career after being it for a little bit, It's okay to have multiple careers or passions, and it's okay for those interests to shift as well. You may be doing more music production in one year, and then later on you may do more music therapy, or you may be like, hey, I love music therapy, but I'm really interested in woodworking. You know, do the woodworking if that's something you want to explore. Music therapy isn't an end-all be-all, and no career should be an end-all be-all. It can be, but it's not necessarily should be. So that's a big lesson. Another one that I've really learned is the instrument of choice that you use in sessions. This has to do with the personality type, but a lot of us use guitars in sessions. And one of the reasons is because it's one of the most portable instruments. It's a traditional American instrument. It's just really recognizable. But I encourage you all to use the instrument that you feel most comfortable with or the one that you believe you can facilitate the best with. And maybe it's one that you want to get better at, but explore that. You know, we don't have to use a guitar. That's something that I've learned as well and kind of new, but it's something that I've really tried to expand more. Like sometimes I go into sessions with my accordion and I play that and it really just creates this like bubbly, joyful mix-up to my daily schedule. Or maybe learn more on the ukulele and bring your ukulele into sessions. You think the guitar is easy to move around? Especially if you have like a clear-coated ukulele or ukulele, you can definitely just sanitize that. Definitely explore those instruments. It's really fun and it's worth it. All right, I believe we're on number four. Number four lesson I've learned is challenges are a good thing. If you are feeling uncomfortable, feeling stretched in your abilities, or feeling properly challenged, that's a great thing. It's not necessarily bad. It feels uncomfortable, and it might feel like, oh gosh, this is so much. It's really bogging me down, and I just don't know. (sighs) I don't know if I can do it for very long, which leads me to this point 
it is a great thing if it's in moderation. If that is your 24-7 and it's affecting your quality of life, you feel like you're constantly in a state of anxiety, you feel like you're constantly being challenged in ways that you didn't ask for or never necessarily wanted, then it may be time to reevaluate. And that could be in the setting of music that you're trying out with clients. It could be in terms of a job. It could be terms of just feeling stressed with advocating and getting recognized at your facility or at your private practice or at your hospital. So take some time. Think about if you're feeling challenged and if you are feeling challenged and it's kind of like an ebb and flow, like a roller coaster, that's a great thing. If it's feeling more like a slope, like you're not really being challenged, you're getting challenged less every day, maybe you throw something in. If you don't address the constant challenges that you have, if you are overwhelmed with some challenges, it can pretty easily lead to burnout, workplace toxicity with talking to colleagues, lower self-esteem in the workplace, and really it can lead to feeling bitter. So I encourage you to reevaluate, figure out what you need to do. Lesson number five. Lesson number five is music therapy is effective, real, and so needed. We already knew this. If you're a music therapist, you know it's effective, real, and so needed, but it's easy when I get into these rants about all the things that I've learned and the lessons I've learned. I also want to talk about the positive things. The lessons that you've learned aren't necessarily easy lessons or good lessons, but they lead to good. I have seen some insane benefits from music therapy over my two years. From keeping someone breathing when off the mechanical ventilator to helping a child process the death of a sibling, helping a sex trafficked teen express their feelings and gain a voice for themselves, helping young queer children experiencing addiction finally express themselves comfortably, to helping a husband cope when his wife of over 60 years was passing and he was in a panic state. There are so many diverse and complex ways in which music therapy is effective. So many different situations, so many different places, populations. It is truly ever-expanding, and that is one of the wonderful lessons I've learned in my two years so far, and I'm excited and so thrilled to see the different ways that music therapy is being used in the next 10 years or even 20. Music therapy is pretty awesome. Hospice music therapy is incredible. For those of you who were wondering, I went ahead and switched to hospice, um, adult hospice, in my second year before I was pediatric, palliative care, and hospice. And so it was a, a different shift, but it's definitely one that scared me a lot when making the jump. And I can say with confidence that it is so incredible I guess the anxious voice in me thought that I might be a mess all the time going into hospice full time, but it's, it's incredible. The progress you see is right away when it happens, the effects and the benefit, the lasting impression and the humbleness that you get going into a family unit or being able to provide services to people who just really need it. It feels amazing, and it's a real honor. So if you're nervous and you're like, I don't know if I can work in hospice, like I have a really complicated relationship with death, definitely explore that relationship. But 
I can let you know that I really, really enjoyed hospice music therapy. It gets me so excited for the other populations or other um, individuals I get to serve in hospice. So try it out. Maybe at a practicum, maybe at uh, advanced training or something. Working as the only music therapist at a company is not lonely. If you have a professional network that you meet with, I love being the only music therapist at my company. It really allows for flexibility. It allows me to express myself in the way that I want to. Nobody is questioning. They, they trust me to know exactly what I'm doing, and I really do. And I don't have any doubts or anxiety about that. And so I encourage people to apply for jobs where you may be the only music therapist because if you're worried about not having music therapy friends don't worry the social workers will be on your team a lot of times the chaplains will be on your team the nurses you'll just find friends and you'll find community outside of your profession and that's just going to make you better at yours so it's worth it don't doubt it if you are doubting it it's also not lonely to be the only music therapist in a company if you have that network of friends that I talked about calling who might have been like your music therapy friends from school. It could be classmates. It could be a subscription-based network. There's a lot of great, great subscription-based groups by music therapy owners on Facebook or things like that. Another really interesting thing that I've learned is that expectations for music therapists, in my experience, have been on like the polar ends. One of them is you don't do anything like I don't really believe in music therapy. And the other is you can do everything. You can do too much. Here's like a thousand people to see and perform at this concert, but also like help somebody process the death of their loved one. And although we're all musicians and we have the capacity of doing all these things, it's the expectations are kind of all over. So within the advocacy piece from earlier, definitely make clear expectations of what a music therapy role looks like. Number six, music therapy as a profession, as a concept is completely ever changing. Because of this, a colleague gave me this tip. Don't always stick with what you learned. You're going to have to adapt. You're going to have to learn new things. And those new things are going to be important because otherwise you're not going to be as effective. That's why we have the recertification every five years in these CMTEs because things change so rapidly in our field. We are directly connected to music. And music changes every 10 minutes as a global thing and so always learn new techniques always keep growing outside of just yourself and your practice but ask others what they're doing read the journals that are public domain and posted and if you have a subscription that's awesome read the research that's being put out because it's phenomenal um, some of the new research that's coming out with music therapy is just really intriguing. And there's no one clear way to do things within the profession. You could be treating somebody um, who has some type of motor disability and you're working on, let's say, gross motor movement of the left arm. 
one music therapist may approach that completely different from the other. And there's not necessarily one right way to address that. And that's like one of the most amazing parts about our career. So just keep that in mind. Everything's ever changing. So you need to be ever learning. Don't be afraid of working with a new population. I said that with hospice, but keep that in mind. With any population, sometimes you just need the mix-up. I've heard with other professionals, they may have been in a profession or within a population for 20 years, and then they decide to switch. There is nothing wrong with that. If anything, kudos to you for taking a big leap and continuing your education in something that's not comfortable. Don't be afraid. You got this. You have the training. And anything that you are lacking, you have full capacity to learn that and to research it. And you are trained to do so. So if it interests you, pursue it. And you don't even have to make the jump to the population. You could just read the research that's coming out on it. Or you can interview people that are working with this populations. It can be as simple as that. One of the last things that I had written down that I want to talk about is trainings don't equate to experience. You can go to a two-day training for, let's say, guided imagery for NICU training. You could go to Nordoff Robbins training. But when it comes down to it, from my experience, actual practical application is what you're going to learn the best from. You could sit in a classroom all day learning about music therapy, but until you're facilitating music therapy, you're not going to know all the nuances and everything. And just because a certification happens, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to feel fully confident going in. I encourage you all to get those actual practical experiences. That's one of the big things. You know, I've learned a lot of techniques and have been privileged to have learned a lot of techniques in university and in my continuing education. But uh, the most benefit and the most times that I felt confident in those techniques is when I actually got to practice them and not from the trainings. So I encourage you all, don't stop with the trainings or don't say that a training is an end-all, be-all. Continue learning and continue growing. I think that's really beneficial. Now is going to be where I kind of go free-handed and just tell you how I'm feeling about the profession in general. I think that music therapy, like I said, is incredible. It's really, really hard. Um, the expectations of music therapists are really high. And so that in contrast with how much we're recognized or how much we're paid or how we're, you may get confused with another profession can be tough. And that's when those networks of people is really useful. I have learned a lot about myself in this career. I've learned about my biases and things that I hadn't even thought about prior to going into a therapeutic field. I learned about my strengths and the differences that I bring into music therapy, such as my creativity, songwriting, my like positive personality, which I think is funny because I think I'm more of a realist, but from what I've heard, I am viewed as a very optimistic person. Think about what those are for you and bring those to the table. Ultimately, what I'm getting at here, though, is that there are so many amazing things to bring to the profession, but the profession is a difficult one. And two years in, a lot of my colleagues have pursued other careers 
a few of them have stayed in this profession. And there's kind of like this interesting loneliness to the idea of, am I going to stay in this profession and be the only one of my colleagues that I learned with and grew with who's going to be here? But that's great because I get to help mentor the younger generation and still learn from the older generation. But there's like a, a, a solo kind of piece to that almost. But for those people that stayed, you know, those those relationships grow a lot stronger. And those bonds expand past music therapy at some point. So that's that's a really great part. But it is challenging. I think that what I've seen with the governing bodies of music therapy has been challenging. I don't want to get too much into it on this podcast. However, I will say music therapy is not owned by, or music and its therapeutic effectiveness is not owned by music therapists. And thus, there's no one definition for effectiveness of the therapeutic purposes of music. Like it can be effective for one person and effective in a different way for another person. And so we should really value the diversity within our community of music therapists. And I would say it's, it's been kind of hard to see that that hasn't been outwardly said or stated right off the bat. And that we've had a little bit of time to think or um, hesitation with putting things out there that support the diversity and equity within our profession from a professional and governing level. That's That's been challenging. As much as I said, it can be hard for colleagues of yours to leave the profession. It's also one of those things where if you are one of the people that wants to stay in the field, as I am, it's really tempting to go to higher education because you already have that interest. Finances are its own thing, but just for the sake of learning, it's very tempting. So at year two, that's something that I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about the benefits of getting a higher education in music therapy versus another field, for instance, to expand my abilities and what I can do, such as getting like counseling so that I can do talk therapy as well as music therapy or getting a master's in music therapy and kind of what that looks like, what the specialty is going to be. So that's definitely something that's happening this year. Two years in, personality and adulthood is setting in. Like, I feel like I'm starting to settle into who I am as a person. Although I will say there's still a couple shifts every now and then that throw me for a loop. But I think my core personality is starting to set in which follows development research. I think at like 30 is when it really sets in, but that's something that's happening within the second year and priorities shift. And so this podcast is really important to me. It's a priority. My ability to produce episodes every other week is no longer there. And that's okay because like I said, I focus on quality and not quantity of episodes, think I've said that in past episodes, but I want to make sure everything I put out is a valuable resource and not a waste of your all's time. So a priorities shift and this podcast is one of my priorities and my family and my friends are a huge priority. And I, 
I am curious as to what your all's priorities are. So definitely put those in the comments of the Instagram or the Facebook or on this episode. I want to know what your priorities shifted to in this second year or in this year of your life. I think those are the nuggets of wisdom that I've gathered so far. And for those of you listening, I love to do this. I went ahead and reached out to other music therapists who have been practicing in the field for around two years, and I asked them to send me their wisest lessons. Like I said, this podcast is about showcasing the voices of music therapy. So without further ado, let's hear a little bit from them. The biggest lesson I have learned in my two years as practicing as a music therapist would be expansion of that creativity and flexibility that you learn in school, but also thinking about versatility a lot, um, especially when it comes to the creation of different applications, interventions, however you want to refer to them for your students. I specifically work um, in a school setting, a school-based music therapist, and I work with students in general education, and I work with students who are in self-contained center-based programs. They're in their own school, their self-contained school. I have a pretty large caseload, so I think a lot about How can I work on similar skills and have a similar application intervention, but differentiate it for any setting that I might be working in? And that's definitely something that I have um, been exploring and working with a lot over the last years, especially because, you know, last year, my first year, we were still navigating COVID and we did have times where I would have students who were still in person in in their learning and there were also students who were virtual and we had to figure out how do we service these students over this virtual platform and again it comes to that versatility of the application and the interventions that I'm creating I might be doing the same thing in person that I'm doing virtually and it's just how am I differentiating it and and making it functional for whatever platform and the student that I am working with so I think the biggest things really truly have been that recognition of flexibility because that's definitely a big thing in the school setting. Never know what, well, never know what's going to happen. And I think everybody can say that in their settings. And then I, I think the creativity and the versatility of what we create are the few things that I've learned the most, or I find are the biggest lessons I've learned in the last two years. The top things I learned in my two years of being a music therapist is really an unlearning of a lot of things. An unlearning of what a music therapist is supposed to be, or what a music therapist is supposed to do, or where they're supposed to serve. After so many years of training, of doing clinical work, and getting yourself to the place where you're finally board certified, and I hit that moment of okay, what's next? Where am I called to serve? And in what capacity am I able to do that? Especially after going through clinical internship during a pandemic, it allowed me that space and experience to find my limitations as a clinician, as a compassionate person, as a caregiver, um, and a member of you know, my family, society, and I truly learned what it means to balance all of those aspects of self. I also learned that when it comes to my purpose, that it's okay for that to change. 
for so many years it was focused on just the goal of becoming a music therapist and once I became one he was like okay what's next what else can I do and that's when I began to find my community of other helpers and the beautiful thing about that is they don't all have to be music therapists in fact there's not enough of us to go around to serve all the people in need so we need other professionals and how can we continue to find opportunities to collaborate with the other disciplines to enhance the way we care for others and if there's one more thing that i can share that i learned in these first two years as a music therapist is that no matter how hard how difficult things may seem to get you're a music therapist you'll bend but you'll never break stay flexible and lean on your support system when you need it. Don't be afraid to ask for help. It's okay not to have all the answers. If you don't know, or you don't have the skill, then ask for help. Seek expertise. And never stop learning and growing. In my two and a half years of being a music therapist, the biggest lessons I've learned are that this profession requires you to be very independent, especially if you are a traveling music therapist. Don't forget to connect with other MTBCs and check in with the people on your team. Another lesson I've learned is to not be afraid to work in an unfamiliar setting. The anticipation is always the scariest part, but just be confident and believe in your abilities. Of course, preparing and researching ahead of time always helps, but remember that you will also be able to learn a lot while in the session. And lastly, I've learned that this field is ever-changing and you must always be open to new challenges and adapt to current circumstances. No one could have ever foreseen how virtual sessions could have worked before COVID, but we have all learned to adapt and still be effective therapists. Continue to be creative and innovative as our profession depends on it. Since my time working as a music therapist starting in 2020, I've learned a lot of lessons. One of the most important lessons that I've learned is to really focus on building a good relationship with your clients. There's so much trust and progress that can come from this. And if you take the time to get to know your clients, their likes, their dislikes, their belief systems, their way of functioning, their communication, so much positivity and progress can be made just from taking the time to do that. Another thing that I've learned that's highly important is to really trust your intuition. It is great to receive supervision and gain advice and further your education, but the only person who can do music therapy like you is you. Hone in on your strengths and on the skills you're most comfortable with, and remember that the work that you're doing is truly between you and your client. Alternatively, though, don't be afraid to ask for help. Our clients deserve our best selves and the best help that they can possibly get. And there is no shame in going to somebody and asking advice, gaining supervision, and asking with help working on important skills to give your clients the best treatment that they can possibly get. Mm -hmm.